0: Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of life. Lord, we praise you as the God who knew us even when we were in our mother's womb. And we are reminded of that beautiful text in the Gospel of Luke where John the Baptist leapt in the womb of his mother even as he was in the presence of the mother of your son, Jesus. And here in this place and in this time, we want to recognize all of those who are unborn in our nation right now, those young babies who are developing in their mother's womb. God, we just ask for your protection over these young children. Father, we pray for the mothers who are giving care to these babies in their womb. We pray especially for those moms from very hard places, uh, maybe in places where they've been abused or addicted, and they themselves may uh, continue that cycle by abusing the baby in their own womb. God, we pray for their protection. God, we pray for the legal protection of these babies. God, we pray for your hand to move in our nation in such a way that those who are most vulnerable among us must be those must would also be those who are the most protected and loved and cared for among us. And we pray that we, as your people, might be agents of that care and love. And I pray very practically, even as we look forward to supporting the Elizabeth House, that you would generate from among our community a great deal of resources and financial help to support this organization that is doing such good work to care for young moms. And we pray, God, that even now as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that in attending to your voice, that we might be changed. God, you know we need to be changed by your grace, so come by your Spirit. Meet us in this place, wherever we are at, God. Come and break in and speak, and make us attentive. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. All right, so today we're going to be continuing on in our series, Wilderness, And what I want to do today is, I actually want to circle back to the text that we looked at last week, the story of uh, manna in the wilderness. And I want to just highlight for you a character issue that actually surfaces in this story. It grows throughout the wanderings in the wilderness, and it becomes a problem that is so acute that it eventually provokes the anger and the judgment of God. And it will ultimately be that character issue that will prevent the children of Israel from entering into the promised land. And it's described in Exodus chapter 16 like this. We've talked about it before, but it says this. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. We said last week that this phrase or this verb, grumbled, is the most common word to describe the action of the children of Israel throughout their time in the wilderness. In other words, the most common, the most frequent thing that Israel found themselves doing in the wilderness was complaining. And uh, the Hebrew word for, uh, that's translated here. Uh, uh, grumbled in some of your Bibles, it's translated as murmured. It's the Hebrew word yilanu, and uh, it's a compound word that brings together an idea of uh, kind of like a um, a quiet or a soft complaint. And the idea is, is that kind of complaining that you did as a teenager when uh, your parents scolded you and uh, you didn't want to say anything too loud. And so instead you just kind of murmured under your breath, how dare they, what's wrong with them when I move out of this house, you know, or whatever. But it's a soft complaint. And that's the description here. The children of Israel, they're grumbling, they're murmuring, they're softly complaining. And of course, this isn't a unique problem to Israel in the wilderness. It is a problem that all of us struggle with. You know, uh, grumbling is one of those things that we universally dislike when we see it in others, and yet we invariably approve of it when we find it in ourselves. You know, it's one of those things that's it's easy to spot in another person, and we almost always dislike it. You know, you rarely uh, introduce a friend to somebody and say, yeah, this uh, this is George, and George is such a wonderful, incredible person. You know, they just complain so much, they're so bitter, and they grumble all the time, and you really got to hang out with them. No, it's like, we don't like that in other people, you know? Um, And yet grumbling is something we ourselves are often guilty of. And it's something that we need to attend to in the church. You know, there was a book written a while back by an author called Jerry Bridges, and he wrote this book called Respectable Sins. And in this book, uh, he basically argues that there are a certain catalog of sins that we will not tolerate in the church. You know, you might be in a community group and if somebody started to say, you know, this, this last week I went out and uh, I cheated on my husband or I robbed a bank or I embezzled a million dollars, you know, nobody in the community group would pat them on the back and say that was fine. There's just stuff we will not tolerate in church. But then there's another catalog of sins that Jerry Bridges says that are the respectable ones. And these are the ones we tolerate, and yet, very often, these sins often can be very subtle, and yet they can be very toxic and destructive to our own life. And so, one of the things that the New Testament authors do when they look back on the wanderings of the wilderness is they warn us against the sin of grumbling. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 puts it like this. It says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So he says, look, watch out. Don't grumble because grumbling grumbling can lead to your own destruction. Now, if that's true, we need to ask what is grumbling all about anyway? How can I spot it in my life? You know, we need to explore the topic of grumbling together. And so we want to do that today. And I want to look with you at grumbling from the stories, from some of the stories in the, old, in, uh, the wilderness uh, underneath three headings. Number one, we're going to note the complexity of groaning. Uh, secondly, or of grumbling. Second, the consequence of grumbling. And then thirdly and finally, we'll talk about the alternative to grumbling. So first, let's note the complexity of grumbling. So it's interesting. uh, Grumbling surfaces immediately as the children of Israel enter into the wilderness. And you remember a couple weeks ago, they come to the waters of Marah, they're bitter, and they grumble And then a little bit later uh, in Exodus chapter 16, what we just read about, uh, they come and they're hungry and they grumble. And uh, in the next chapter in chapter 17, once again, they're thirsty and they respond by grumbling. And uh, so back to back to back here in Exodus 16, there are three stories of grumbling. And what's interesting actually is that these three stories of back to back grumbling and Exodus 15 to 17 are mirrored by three stories of back-to-back-to-back grumbling in Numbers 10 through 14. But what's interesting is that in these chapters, where each time the children of Israel grumble, their grumbling is met by God's gracious provision. In Numbers 10 to 14, every time they grumble, it actually provokes God's anger and it's met with God's judgment. And so it's interesting, you've got these two different, you know, kind of catalog of, uh, gr- of grumbling stories. One is met with God's grace, and the other is met with judgment. And we should ask, what's the difference between these two types of grumblings that uh, are revealed in these two different catalog of stories, and why are they met with two different responses from God? And I think the answer is, when you look at the text, is that you find is that in Exodus 15, 16, and 17, uh, Israel is grumbling out of their own need. In other words, this is the grumbling of the needy. They are in desperate straits. And uh, they have no water. They need water to live. They have no food. They need food to live. Once again, they have no water. They need water to live. And so they grumble. They grumble. They grumble. And their grumbling is birthed out of desperate need. Now, whether or not their attitude was right, God doesn't rebuke them in any of those stories. He doesn't confront them. Uh, there's no anger. Instead, in each, in each. Uh, text, we hear something like this, and the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 16 verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. And his response to the grumbling, he says, say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so their grumbling is coming out of need, and God responds to the need with his gracious provision. And I just think it's, it's, it's good for us to pause there that sometimes even when people's attitudes are bad and maybe the attitude needs to change, maybe they've done something that brought them into their own dire condition and straits, uh, when God sees dire need, he is not moved first to lecture them. Instead, he's moved to meet their need. But in Numbers 10 to 14, we have a different kind of catalog of stories. Here, uh, it's not the grumbling of the needy. Instead, what you find in Numbers 10 to 14 is the grumbling of the entitled. Because in these stories, Israel is not in dire need. Instead, what do they grumble about? Well, uh, in chapter 10 uh, down to the first part of chapter 11, they're grumbling because of their regular travel schedule. They have to keep moving from one camp to a next. And then Numbers 11, we hear Israel complaining about that like this. She says, uh, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. How dare you take us on these long journeys? Can't we stay longer in one location? You know, And then in the next story, they're complaining, uh, not out of dire hunger, they're complaining because they don't like the food they do have. Of course, they're not the first or the last people that complained because they didn't like the food that's in the refrigerator or in the cupboards. They wanted more variety, and so they complain. And I love it. They say in verse uh, uh, four of chapter 11, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength has died up and there is nothing at all to look at but this manna, you know? And so again, it's not need. They're entitled. God has provided for them, but it's not enough. And then the final story, God declares to them, I'll be with you when you go into the promised land. And they send some spies to check out the land God's going to give them. And they come back and they report out on their experience. And all they do is complain. They complain about the giants in the land. So God says, I'll be with you. And they say, but there's giants and they spread a bad report, and they grumble, and they complain in the presence of God. And that kind of grumbling out of entitlement is met with the anger and the judgment of God. Now, that raises a question. How can we discern in our own selves when we're grumbling out of need and when we're grumbling out of entitlement? Well, let me just give you a few qualities or characteristics of an entitled grumbler. Uh, number one, in our story, we learned that entitled grumblers idealize the past. Uh, in chapter 16, verse 3, the children of Israel, as they look back on Egypt, they say this, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. And of course, in the text we uh, uh, just read, they add to the meat pots where they ate bread to the full of fish, uh, I love this. They said, we had, we, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, <laughs> free fish, uh, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. And, and they're remembering the past, but the only thing they remember about life in Egypt is their free food and the great variety of food. Now, Back in the reality of Egypt, they were crying out in pain because of their slavery. But here they don't remember the slavery, they only remember the flavors of the food. And it is just a constant feature of an entitled grumble, grumbler that they look back on the idealized past. Oh, I remember back you know, when I was a kid, back in the day, everything was better. You know, back before we had this pastor, back uh, when I was young and we had a different president, back, you know, whatever it was, we look back and we idealize the past. Not only that, grumblers distort the present. Notice what uh, the children of Israel say to Moses back in uh, chapter 16, verse 3. The people of Israel said to them, you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, question. Question. Did Moses leave his family and uh, leave a comfortable life he had and go to confront Pharaoh in order to get himself in a bunch of hardship and take the children of Israel out of Egypt? Did he go through all of that to take them into the wilderness in order to kill them there? The answer, of course, is no. (laughs) But what they're doing is they're distorting the reality of their own present. And this is so often the case. In an effort to justify our own bitterness, sometimes our own negativity, sometimes our own bad attitude, we distort reality around us and we make things seem a lot worse than they actually are in order to feel okay with our own negativity that we're gonna hold on to. And so, do you distort the past? Do you uh, uh, distort the reality of the present? Uh, Thirdly, grumblers exacerbate the people around them. The children of Israel, uh, they just are constantly frustrating Moses because Moses feels like, no matter what I do, I cannot please you. And I wonder if you've ever been around the kind of person where it just seems like no matter what happens, they're not happy. And you can never make them happy. And there's always something wrong. And you're always doing the wrong thing. You're always saying the wrong thing. You're always being the wrong person. And, um, and, 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 and this is the children of Israel to Moses. And listen to how Moses responds. He's just exacerbated. He says this to the Lord. He says, <laughs> he reads God the riot act. This is kind of funny. He says, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give the fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and they say, give us meat, give us meat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. (laughs) Moses is so like, he's so frustrated by these people. He's like, I'm over it. I'm done. Take my life, Lord, you know? And um, because of how negative they are around them, they're just toxic and destructive to Moses' own self and well-being. And so grumblers, entitled grumblers, distort the past, they distort reality in the present, and they exacerbate the people around them. But again, I don't want you to misunderstand. Grumbling is not the same thing as what the Bible calls groaning. You know, there's a a place in the New Testament in Romans 8 where it speaks about times and places in our life where we groan. We groan about the injustice in the world, about the pain in the world. And, and we say, God, how long? When are you going to act? God, my, my life is, is, is rough and it's hard. You know, the Bible doesn't encourage us to stuff our negativity. It doesn't invite us to play a game of make-believe before God and pretend like things are different in our life than they really are. The Bible invites us again and again to bring our own pain, our own problems, our own issues, our own negativity inside, to bring it to speech in the presence of God and to groan. But the distinction between a groan and a grumble is that the groan is turning to God with your hands open and saying, God, come and act. God, how long? God, I'm hurting. And the, gro- the grumbler closes their hand as a fist and they say, God, how dare you? God, when are you going to change things? If I ran the universe, I'd make things better than than this. There's a difference between a groan and a grumble. And so that's the complexity of grumbling. But there is this entitled grumbling that I think all of us at some point in our life at some point, let's be honest, at some point in this day, you were wrestling with, amen? Can I get a witness to uh, the entitled grumbling? But I want you to set a note, second, the consequence of their grumbling, the consequence of grumbling. You know, um, it's interesting, as you turn a little bit further into the wilderness, so in Exodus 15 to 17, we're at the very... It's really like the first month that the children of Israel are entering into the wilderness. When you get to Numbers 11 through 14, they've now been in for several months, uh, several years. They're on their way into a 40-year trek in the wilderness. And their, groan, or their grumbling just keeps growing, and it becomes more acute. And when it, it reaches its height of acuteness it starts to evoke the anger of God. And listen to what it says again in, in Numbers 11. It says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Listen, what, what, what is really going on, like the real issue that's at stake when we grumble is not that we have an issue simply with the circumstances around us or maybe our kids or our parents or this trip we're on or the pandemic or the government. The real problem with the entitled grumbler, the the real problem they have is not with the circumstances. It's ultimately with God. And Moses points this out in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8. And Moses said, because the Lord heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. And then he says this, who are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, again, don't misunderstand. He's not saying that anytime you decry the problems and the injustices in our world, that you are grumbling against God. Uh, The world is in a state that has fallen right now. And God's will is not the only will at play in the world. There are contrary wills to the will of God. And they are doing destruction and they're committing atrocities and they're committing murder and they're wreaking havoc in God's world. And where we see that we should decry the injustice and we should cry out in pain, God, come and act. And that's not to question God. That is to, that is to be in line with the heart of God which is against those things. And it's the long for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But on the other hand, when we have our needs met and when like many of us, you know, who are listening to this sermon, when you live a life of comfort and ease, you know, we're, we're basically like in the history of the world relative to everyone else in the world right now, most of us live very comfortable and affluent lives And when we look around at all of these minor things that cause us irritation, and those things just start to form this whole world, this island of negativity inside of us, then ultimately what you are complaining against is not the circumstances, it is complaint against the God who has provided for your needs. You are acting in a way that is an affront to God's gracious provision in your life and in my life. And so... Moses calls them out on this. And notice, in consequence, God's anger is aroused, and then he exerts his, his judgment over his people. And, and when it reaches its final, its, uh, its most acute state, the judgment God brings on them is really interesting. Ultimately, after years and years of this negativity and of this unbelief and of this ingratitude and of this grumbling, they're they're just, God's brought us out here to kill us and, and life is terrible and everything's wrong and all we have is this manna to eat. Listen to how God ultimately responds to all of this. Numbers chapter 14, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies will fall in the wilderness. Did you hear that? He says, what you have said, I will now do for you. In other words, he is going to finally hand them over to their own negative world, their own negative reality that they've created. It's as if God says, look, you insist on living in your negativity, you insist on week after week and month after month, continuing to create this whole alternate reality where everything is against you and all is, is wrong. And, and, and you almost you don't know how to live in any other world than a world where everything is going wrong against you because that's how you feel okay about yourself. You're just a victim to everything else that's going on around you. And God finally says, fine, I will hand you over to your negativity. You keep saying, I will die in the wilderness, fine. You will die in the wilderness. You know, one of the most significant ways that the judgment of God is framed in scripture is, as, is of God ultimately giving us over to our worst impulses that we refuse to let go of. And listen, let this be a warning to us who hear this, including myself. If we insist again and again, to hold on to our own ingratitude, our own negativity, our own bitterness, our own deep-seated anger. And we, 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 we insist on clinging to that. Ultimately, God will give us over to that thing that we cling to as an act of judgment, and that thing itself will ultimately engulf us. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. And I love this description. I, I, I read this years ago and it is in his book called The Great Divorce. Um, but he, he describes hell and grumbling like this. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. There will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. In other words, even the most subtle, even the most respectable sins if we insist on holding on to it they can grow in us and ultimately they can engulf us and 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 it will destroy us and it will be toxic to those around us and so the the call with the the, the wake up call in these stories in these acts of judgment from god is to repent it's to name the grumbling in our life to renounce it and to root it out and to choose an alternate way And what is that alternate way? And let's finally close with this. The alternative to grumbling. You know, the alternative to grumbling is gratitude. Right? I mean, the alternative, the inverse actually of grumbling and of complaining about everything that's going on that's wrong, that shouldn't be this way, the inverse of that is looking around at all of the good, all of the gift, all of the grace and saying thank you to God to cultivate a heart of gratitude. So the alternative to, grati- to grumbling is gratitude. But how do we take this path from grumbling to gratitude? And i want to suggest that it, it takes at least three things. Uh, number one, it will take us recognizing when we are grumbling. You know, again... Grumbling is something we universally dislike when we see it in others, and yet we invariably approve of it or maybe ignore it when we see it in ourselves. And so the first step is awareness. You know, awareness precedes change. If you're going to change the grumbling and the complaining, you've got to be aware where and when it surfaces in your life. And again... Don't let yourself be the final judge over when you are grumbling because oftentimes we justify ourselves. Well, I'm just, I'm just being honest. I'm just speaking the truth. I, I'm just, this is just who I am. No, maybe you're negative. You know, Maybe you need to repent. You know, Maybe you need to call that out in your life and change it because it's unhelpful to you and it's unhelpful to the people around you. None of us like it you know, and you don't even like it. And so name it and maybe invite others to speak into your life. Maybe a roommate, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe a husband or wife, uh, parents, maybe your kids. You can say, guys, do I ever grumble and complain? And then just hold on to the grace of God as tight as you can and listen and receive So, number one, recognize when we are grumbling. But secondly, we need to recall God's blessings. We need to recall God's blessings. You know, I was uh, listening to a sermon of my brother's on uh, this text, and uh, uh, he's got a bunch of uh, small kids in his home, and he made reference to a kid's story about Pete the Cat. And I went on and I uh, went online and I read this uh, little kid's story. Because I thought it was uh, so clever, but the, the story he referenced was called Pete the Cat and His Magic Sunglasses. And so Pete the Cat is normally a very positive cat; uh, he's always in a good mood. But uh, one day he gets in this real you know sour mood, and he doesn't know how to pull himself out. And then he runs into Grumpy Old Toad, and Grumpy Old Toad is incredibly positive because he's wearing these blue colored glasses and he says to Pete the cat take these glasses and put them on and Pete puts them on and all of a sudden he looks at the world through a new lens and the sun is shining and the birds are singing you know and the trees are clapping their hands and all is good and all is wonderful and Pete the cat is is you know going from friend to friend and he's cheering them up and he's bringing positivity everywhere he goes and then um, uh, but he gets on a skateboard and he has a tragic accident and the sunglasses fly off and they splatter on the ground And he doesn't know what to do, and he's all upset, and then he runs into wise old Al, and wise old Al says this. He says, Pete, you don't need magic sunglasses to see things in a new way. Just remember to look for the good in every day. Now, I know, you might think that is so simplistic and naive, My life is so negative, it's so bad, you know, I got chronic illness, you know, my parents are getting a divorce, Uh, you know, I struggle with depression, don't throw that Pete the cat stuff at me. You know, yesterday, um, Jonathan and my daughter Eve and I went to visit a lady in our church whose name is Maureen Giorgiati, many of you know her, on December 29th, she turned 94 years old, and... You know, we, we asked her, you know, what, what, what's a song we could sing together? Because Jonathan was going to play the piano. And she said, uh, do you know the song, Count Your Blessings? And she started to recite the song, you know, count your blessings, name them one by one, count your blessings, see what God hath done. And I, I, I noted to Jonathan with Maureen there that Maureen has not had a simple, easy life. Uh, She lost one of her sons to AIDS. Uh, She lost another son to a brain tumor. And she's just struggled. She's had a lot of pain, deep and real pain. And yet at 94, she is one of the most joyful, one of the most grateful people I've encountered. And it's because she has made a habit in her life of cultivating gratitude by counting her blessings one by one. You know, uh, Jews have this practice called the 18 benedictions where uh, they, they're constantly walking around praising God for everything. And so within these uh, 18 benedictions, uh, there would be these benedictions where they would praise God for um, all of the food that they had received. And they had different blessings For different kinds of food. And so they had a blessing for the bread, and a blessing for the wine, and a blessing for the figs, and they had a blessing for comets. Uh, They had a blessing for when you light a lamp in your home because we could live in a world with darkness, but thank God he's given us a world with light. Uh, They had a blessing even for the ocean, which, you know, if you live in Southern California and the weather is so great all the time, I was down at the beach last weekend in the middle of January, it was 70 degrees. We're at the ocean, it was just gorgeous. And I just was blessing God for the ocean. You know, we could be in a place like Michigan, that's like in negative 25 degrees, you know, the kind of place God sends people when he doesn't like them, you know, but no, we live in California, you know, near the ocean and bless God, but they had a blessing for everything. You know, G.K. Chesterton said this, or no, G.K. Chesterton didn't say this. The apostle Paul said this. He said, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Some of us are searching for what God's will. What is God's will for my life? You know, we're searching and we're searching. What does God want me to do with my life? You know, and you're searching for God's will. It's not even lost. It's right here. It is to be grateful, cultivate gratitude. How much gratitude? Gratitude in all circumstances, you know, that word in Greek for all, it means all. It means in all kinds of circumstances, give thanks to God. G.K. Chesterton put it like this He said, You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and the pantomime, grace before I open a book, grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. You know, this week our staff was reading together Matthew uh, chapter five and, uh, or Matthew six. We we're reading about how Jesus gives uh, food and he gives clothing to his children. And Pastor Robert pointed out that, uh, because, you know, he's done a bunch of, uh, he's the the theologian of fashion, but he was talking to us about John Calvin's comments that he made on both food and clothing. And he said, you know, it could be that when God sought to satiate our need for nourishment of our bodies, that he could have just given us food. But instead, he gave us food that brings delight, that has flavors that explode in your mouth. Uh, the other night, my 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 wife Alicia made these shrimp tacos with this incredible chipotle seasoning and a mango uh, avocado salsa, and these marinated uh, onions. And you just took a bite of that thing and just flavors exploded in your mouth. Thank God that he doesn't just give us food, he gives us flavors and enjoyment. And then he doesn't just give us clothing to keep us warm, but we can wear clothing that when you look at it, you go, oh, it just brings delight. Look at look at Jonathan's, you know, uh, face mask or, um, <laughs> you know, you, you could call it, but, but there, there are things, that clothing that bring delight and a smile. And it's because God is so good and he's, given us so much. And yes, the world is broken, it's fallen, there's pain. But there is so much good and there is so much gift and there is so much grace in our lives. And he's saying, open your eyes and see what you have and then cultivate a heart on life of gratitude. And then finally, remember God's gracious gift. You know, it's interesting, in Exodus 16, at the close of the manna story, Moses says this, he says, this is what the Lord has commanded, let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations. An omer was a a certain portion of it. And he says a little bit later, it should be kept in a jar. And he says, you should keep it throughout all generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says, keep this bread as a token of remembrance for all of the ways God has graciously provided for you. And you know, Jesus gave us on the night before he was crucified, a token, a a, a symbol that we were to keep in remembrance for the ultimate expression of God's gracious gift to us which was the gracious giving of God's very self in Jesus Christ. God hasn't just given us food to delight the senses. He hasn't given us simply clothing that delight the eyes or friends that that delight our own need and, and restore our need for community and fellowship. God has given to you and me his very self in Jesus Christ. And so he says, Keep that always before you in remembrance and let that return to God's grace again and again by returning to the Lord's Supper, by returning to the cross. Let it continue to cultivate this this heart of gratitude that pulls you out of the default mode of grumbling and pulls you into the refreshing, the life-giving posture of gratitude. I'm gonna invite our band to come up now and I'm just gonna pray over us that God would help us to develop hearts of gratitude. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we confess before your face that we are often entitled. God, that we often live with ingratitude, that we often find ourselves using our words not to build up our brothers and sisters and our neighbors and this world, but we use our words to burden people and to complain and to bring negativity. And we just ask, oh God, that you would break that force in our life and cultivate in us a deep heart of gratitude because you are a God who has given everything for us. God, would you enable us to live a life of of graciously giving everything back to you as an act of gratitude for your goodness toward us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who has given his own life fully and unreservedly for us. Amen.